If you would, take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. For several weeks now, we've been looking at uh, the vices. Um, specifically, we spent three Sundays looking at sloth. And today we'll begin looking at vainglory. We know vain, we know vanity, but uh, vainglory not so much. It was on the original list of capital vices or deadly sins, but in time it was dropped from the list, which is interesting because I think vainglory drives much of our society today. As I said earlier in the series, the word vices is not found in the Bible. So where did the idea come from? We believe it originated in the fourth century, as we have men that are known as the Desert Fathers went out into the desert to live and to, in a sense, take sin and temptation head on, to live a life of contemplation through prayer, and in a sense to mirror the experience of Jesus in the wilderness. Based on their experiences, a list was drawn up of the deadly sins or the capital vices. They referred to them as thoughts or demons that afflicted the monks that were there. The original list they came up with was for the monks or for the hermits who were living in the desert. But as time went on, there was a transition, I think, for the good, that it was not specifically about the individual, but about the community. So that when we think of vices, often today, particularly being Americans and individualistic, we tend to think only of the individual fighting specific vices. But in fact, it is the entire community, it is the church, the people of faith. Together, uh, we are to struggle against these vices. As we seek to understand what vainglory is, um, I think we might imagine that we have sort of a, a vague idea of what vainglory is, and I think our conversation would probably begin with people involved in pop culture, you know, where a celebrity is someone who's well-known for being well-known, uh, or as Lady Gaga put it, I am the master of the art of fame. Um, we have all these reality TV shows. We have talent programs, so-called, including modeling, where one aspiring teen model said her mother told her, always shine, never blend. But if we leave vainglory to this realm, then we will think, well, it really doesn't affect me. I'm not guilty of this vice. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a celebrity wannabe. Just you know, one of the silent majority. But vainglory, in fact, affects us all. It casts a wide net. Garrison Keillor confessed, I lust after recognition. I am desperate to win all the little merit badges and trinkets of my profession. And I am of less real value or real use in the world than any good cleaning lady. Go to any academic conference. And inevitably, after someone gives a paper, there's a time for question and answer, and you will have a professor stand up to ask a question that's really not a question, but sort of a mini-lecture in which he or she uh, will use words that most of us aren't familiar with and name-drop the people that they know, um, all in a sense to get in attention. And think of politics. We're seems we're forever in the political season, but... People don't listen to what people have to say, but rather go for their images. And so are we, are we surprised that politicians, that candidates preen for the cameras? And then there is the social media in which one can project a public image of oneself to get other people's attention. 
But there's one more realm that is affected by vainglory, and that is the church, in which it may be that we want to appear to be good Christians rather than actually being good Christians. One writer put it this way, Christians seem to me to divide into two groups nowadays. The first lot don't think that sin matters very much anyway. And the second know perfectly well that it does, but still can't kick the habit. Vainglory is a vice for all of us. As tempting as it is to leave it back in the fourth century, or in our century to put it on other people, it in fact does not simply plague glory seekers. It is a vice that plagues Christians and the Christian community. And the reason that we should care about this vice is because, in fact, it keeps us from drawing closer to God. Because it's all about me, and it is not about God. It has been suggested, and I agree, and it's what drives this sermon, that the place to start in examining the vanity, if you wish, the vice of vainglory, is to look at glory itself and find out what glory is and to see if glory, in fact, could be a good thing. We've seen, by the way, over the years that oftentimes studying the opposite of something gives us insight into that thing itself. So to truly appreciate vain glory, we need to study glory. And to do so, we need to ask and answer a question, and that is, can glory of any kind be good? Can glory be good? Many Christians today may assume that glory is something that only God can rightly have or possess, that glory only belongs to God, meaning that any glory that human beings have of their own or seek on their own must by definition be disordered and be wrong. It is true when we look at Scripture that the vast majority of passages that deal with the glory of God or the glory or glory in a positive sense talk about the glory of God. David writes in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. In Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. On the other hand, when we read scripture, it seems that we are constantly being warned or condemned or punished for glory seeking. We read this in the Old Testament about various kings, the prophets um, talk against the rich, those who want to sort of show off who they are. Jesus spoke against the Pharisees of his days. The apostles spoke, Paul did, particularly of the false prophets. And so as Christians, we may in fact doubt whether glory has any good meaning in our lives as individuals or even as a congregation. We see this in the Desert Fathers, in which they argued, at least one particular said, that they had to give up everything that they owned, every penny, that if they did not give up everything, then their renunciation was incomplete. And so we have one of the Desert Fathers actually giving away his Bible because he said he believed that the words of Jesus were that he had to give everything he had and give it to the poor. So there's been a tension, there's been a going back and forth over the centuries about the vices, about glory, vainglory. Think of wrath. One of the vices is wrath. Uh, the church or the desert father said that anger of any kind, in fact, could not be right. One, one particular father said, in fact, that it was disruptive on prayer. And so one could never truly, in a correct way, be angry. 
Others have argued in terms of social justice, that if we aren't angry about injustice, then what in fact is going to motivate us to do what we do? So when it came to the issue of glory, the question is, can glory ever be good for us as human beings? We need to back up one more step and say, what does glory mean? What is the definition of glory? Taken from Thomas Aquinas, goodness or glory is goodness that is displayed. It is something that people can see. This description simply means that people notice something good. They recognize it as good and attractive and desirable, and they express approval and even praise. This means that goodness does not have to be moral goodness. It can be anything that is good or anything that we perceive to be good. If anything good is shown and known, there, in fact, according to Aquinas, we find glory. Or to put it another way, any display of genuine goodness is, in fact, a case of glory. The conversation about glory in, in, in the Christian tradition starts with the display of all and any types of glory, including the glory of creation, the goodness of creation. Um, Gia called me last night to have me come outside because last night was my favorite phase of the moon when it's just that sliver as it begins to wax. Um, there is no moral quality per se about it, but there is a goodness and there is a glory about it. And then the conversation narrows to the issue of human goodness. Not, again, moral quality, but let's say a musical performance or something that's been written or someone singing a song. And we see glory in that. And then finally we come to the issue of moral goodness, human virtue. When we think of God's goodness, we should recognize that it is shown and made known to us in creation and in scripture. In the ancient world, at the time of which scripture was written, honor and glory were the primary goals of human existence. This is what people live for. One would think seek and try to win honor and glory for oneself. And in looking at glory, I think we need to distinguish between honor-seeking and glory-seeking. Because if we confuse the two, because people oftentimes use them synonymously, it, really dis- it will complicate our discussion of what glory is, or particularly glory is good. If your name is great or you are famous, this usually implies being respected and revered, honored, and being renowned or widely recognized for it, that is, glorified. Think of someone like Mother Teresa, who was well known for her work among the poor in Calcutta, actually won a Nobel Peace Prize for it, making her an icon for altruism. Her work with the poor was well known and worthy of honor. But I would argue that there was also glory involved. Can glory be good? I would say that it can. But how are we to deal with this and how are we to respond to human glory? In the Sermon on the Mount, where we are here in our text today in Matthew 5, we find what might appear to be conflicting statements which make the issue of glory, I think, somewhat confusing. Let's begin in chapter 5. Actually, let's go to chapter 6 first because that, I think, is more in line with what we normally think. If you look in chapter 6 of Matthew, the first six verses, 
Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, uh, give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This I think we're much more familiar with, the idea that whatever we do should be done secretly, it is not, in the words of Aquinas, something that is observed, um, some good thing that we do that people see, that it is something that's quite private, quite individual, um, and don't tell anybody about it. Now, go back to chapter 5, to Matthew chapter 5, and listen to what Jesus says in verses 14, 15, and 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. One might say, which is it? Am I to do things privately so no one sees? Or am I supposed to let my light shine before people so that they may, in the words of the ESV, give glory to our Father who is in heaven? We have a similar difficulty from Paul when we read him. In 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. That's in 1 Corinthians 13. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, for even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I am not ashamed of it. Like, well, Paul, is boasting wrong or is it right? By the way, he then goes on to quote from Jeremiah chapter 9. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So which is it? Are we allowed to boast or no? Are we to do our works before people so they can see it and God be given glory? Or are we to go into our closet and pray privately or give without our right hand knowing what the left hand is doing? Um, which is it? Well, I think the tension is reconciled in this, that glory that we seek for God's sake and is directed to God is right. And glory that is sought exclusively as our own with no reference to God is wrong. And therefore, in Matthew 6, what the Pharisees do, what they do is wrong because it is to draw attention to themselves. In chapter 5, we are to shine 
so that people will give glory to God and not to ourselves. We need to understand that as human beings we have a natural desire to be known, even for our goodness to be known. And in a real sense, this is the way it should be. We're made in the image of the Creator. And the Creator's goodness is seen in what He does. So as, as those who are in His image, I think there is nothing wrong, there's nothing unique, nothing that we should be ashamed of, that in a sense we want our goodness to be seen. Goodness, I think, by its very nature, communicates itself to others without us even saying, oh, look at this, what I'm doing, in fact, is good. The intention is not always there. We may, in fact, be doing something simply because it's the right thing to do, or we we have a sense this is what I need to do, not because we're saying, oh, I want to bring glory to God. He may, in fact, get glory. Or we want to call attention to ourselves. That doesn't enter our minds at all. We're simply doing what we believe to be right. I don't know where to put this in the sermon, so I'll say it now. But as I was going through this, as I was preparing this, I kept having the image. um, Remember, in the 80s, um, at the height of the AIDS crisis, and we had babies being born with AIDS, and they were basically abandoned in the hospitals. And there would be people who would go to the hospitals and all they would do is sit in a rocking chair and hold the baby. They wouldn't talk to the baby. They wouldn't sing to the baby. You know, they wouldn't say, look at me, what I'm doing. They would simply sit there for hours holding the baby. And in a sense, the goodness, I think their goodness is communicated to the child, even though the child, I don't think, has a cognitive awareness of it. But there is goodness that is, in fact, being displayed. And in this, we reflect the Creator. There's no one, we're not blowing trumpets saying, look at what we're doing. We're simply doing what we believe to be right. When it comes to the goodness of God, what He has done and continues to do has the purpose of drawing His creation to Him. Creation, we as human beings have rebelled against Him. And in His goodness, I think there is this sense God's purpose is to call us, to bring us back to Himself. In the same way, when we do what we are supposed to do, our good deeds, as Jesus calls it, it in fact makes God known to other people and can in fact bring them closer to him. At its glorious best, our goodness is a gift to others. It is a gift to others. Our glory can be useful in glorifying God. Our example may be an example or an incentive, an encouragement to others who may become better by reason of the good that they see in our lives. As Paul told the Philippians, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. I will come back to this, Lord willing, later in this series. But let me lay out a principle now. Glory cannot be a good for an individual alone. It is a gift and a sign for the sake of another. Glory is a sign, and it is, in fact, a gift for the sake of another. I would argue that having one's created goodness be known is not only a fundamental human need, this is the way we are as human beings, but it is, in fact, a prerequisite for genuine love. That goodness, in fact, is to be known. And knowing and acknowledging another in fact, is, I think, an expression of love. 
And when I think of those men and women who sat for hours in rocking chairs holding these babies afflicted with AIDS, without a word being said, love was being expressed and there was glory there. If all of this is true, you might wonder, how does vainglory enter the picture? One way is for us to totally discount the place of glory. And I think in certain Christian traditions, um, glory is, it belongs to God alone, nothing for human beings. Um, Human beings are totally depraved. There's nothing we can do of any value. I do believe we are totally depraved, but I don't believe we have nothing of value to do. This blindness to glory may in fact blind us to vain glory. If we don't recognize the positive, we will fail to recognize the negative. And if we don't understand that glory itself has value, then we will fail to recognize that vain glory itself is quite dangerous. It is a deadly vice, as the Desert Fathers saw. Vain glory draws us away from God. And the purpose of glory is to bring people to God, to draw them to Him. On the other hand, we will see the Lord willing in the weeks to come. It is precisely because glory is so necessary and beneficial to human flourishing that if we're not careful, we will make a fatal substitution and that will be vainglory itself. Because I think as human beings, we need glory. We want what we have done to be seen. Um, We are made in the image of a good creator. But rather than seeing recognition from human beings as a foretaste of God's recognition, it in fact becomes our purpose in life, to get glory from other human beings. We want to be known. We want to be well known by other people. And then our identity, who we think we are, is sort of rooted in the foundation of other people's opinions of us. Their approval, their affirmation, their recognition, their reward. And if that's the way we go, as Jesus said about the Pharisees, the teachers, I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. If that's what you want, you got it. But the reality is, we can, by God's grace, do good and bring glory to God as a gift to others. As a gift to others and a sign to others that will draw them to himself. It may seem strange to begin to talk about vainglory during the Advent season. I didn't plan it this way, but I'm sort of glad that things worked out this way. Because today I wanted to talk about glory. And it is during this Advent season that we hear of God's glory. And we remember the glory of the Incarnation. We hear Mary saying, My soul glorifies the Lord. And we hear the angels praising God saying, Glory to God in the highest. I just want you to consider that if we are blind to glory, then we will fail to recognize properly vain glory and will find ourselves involved in this deadly vice that is pervasive in our culture and in the human condition in general. And we will in fact think that vain glory is okay. It is, it's really ironic that people who think, that pe- think so little of glory are themselves most susceptible to vainglory. 
we need to understand and appreciate what glory truly is so that we can see what vainglory is. And by the grace of God, not only as individuals, but as a congregation, as God's people, avoid the vice of vainglory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in the glory of Christmas, the coming of your Son. We hear it from Mary, we hear it from the angels. May we recognize glory for what it is, the good that it is. And you're calling to us to bring glory to your name in our actions. But it seems oftentimes we have neglected that or we have somehow in false humility or pseudo-humility said, well, no, no, I, I, I don't really do anything good. Um, and in that moment, we have opened ourselves up to vainglory. We live in a culture that thrives on vainglory. So much so that oftentimes we fail to see how wrong it is. Help us by your grace to appreciate your glory and the goodness you've called us to, to bring you glory. And in that light, we will see the darkness of this deadly vice called vainglory. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you. And I thank you for the time that's yet to come as we stay around and eat fellowship together. May we have a sense of your presence among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.